0: Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha, and
1: Zeke Abuha. There you go, right on with time. With
0: Tamson and Dan reading the paper, yes, okay, a, a few and Zeke, comments by Zeke. Yeah, with some comments, with some snarky comments, <laughs> some
2: input sometimes. Well, by
0: Zeke Abuha. Yes, today always, it's He's September. got something to say.
2: He's got something to get off his chest. Stay tuned. Hear what Zeke has to say. It's Sunday, September sixth. It is indeed.
0: We finally hit September.
2: Yeah, we hit it hard. But uh, it's very nice weather, super weather. Very
0: nice weather. We've been out bike riding. Oh, well. Okay. goes without saying. Busy, busy roads, yeah. people yelling at us. Yeah. Uh, but a uh, beautiful day. Yeah. And uh, we're ready to uh, knock this off, embrace
2: yeah. this uh, lower temperature and get back outside. So here yeah. we go. Uh, so we began, uh, we're gonna begin with a show that kind of stunned me. It was one of those things, I know your people have this experience, they're sitting with their significant other, and the significant other says, Let's watch X. And you feel, Well, I guess it's her turn. I guess we'll just, you know, turn the other cheek. And uh, this show was Chef's, was it? Chef's what? Chef's Table. Chef's Table, I'm It's a myself, series, okay. okay. And, and this it,
0: is Chef's Table BBQ. And I
2: say to myself, really, okay, fine. Episode one. We've watched a lot of basketball lately. I can take one for the team. And it turns out,
0: it was really good. It was really good. Didn't you think sometimes? I was worried. Because shows like this, yeah. sometimes it's too deep a dive. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you, know, you know more about something. Too deep a something. dive into a very shallow subject. Right. and <laughs> uh, it And you don't really want to know
2: But this was more. All that. It was more than about food. It was about this woman, whose name is...
0: Tootsie Tominetz. Tootsie Tominetz. All right,
2: so Tootsie is her nickname. Who is a key figure in barbecue in Lexington, Kentucky? Not Lexington, yes. Texas. I am going to make this mistake all the time. Lexington, Texas, right. where barbecue is king, according to this show. Of course, and, and, and she was quite is quite a bit about barbecue.
0: But she was quite a pitmaster par excellence, right? And she's eighty-four years old. Yeah, eighty-four years old. And uh, the whole story starts out slowly weren't you a little bit skeptical at the very beginning yeah, no, no no I was skeptical you know
2: you say stories how slowly it never picked up tremendously it was at very no, even but pace it, but
0: it kind of engaged story. you it did. you know on its own terms on its own and
2: terms it's, it's her story as much as a story about barbecue and it's a very interesting story it's, they, in a very straightforward way she talks and they and they give you some background they tell you her life story which is uh, like many others in some ways in ordinary life. But it's marked by significant events, including you know significant passings and the like, and how she copes with it, and how she uh, ends up doing what she's doing, and how she deals with uh, with age, with loneliness, with loss, and with life. And it was I thought it was very nice. I thought it was. So very it was more good.
0: than just about barbecue. Absolutely. Although the barbecue did look fabulous. <laughs> now she it's she fine. works at she's I guess part owner.
2: Of Snow's Barbecue. Right. For so those of you in Lexington, Texas area. And, she, and,
0: um, and it's a big deal. It's, it's the
2: barbecue. People come
0: all over to They're Texas. only open on Saturday, I think. Yeah. And they come at 8 o'clock in the morning to stand right. online. So she goes to work, age 84. Yeah. She goes to work at 1 a.m. Zeke. 1 a.m. Okay. During the week, she's a um, janitor yeah. at a high school. Kids love her. yes, yeah, she has light okay. duty
2: at the school. I'd say. Yeah, light duty.
0: Well, they, they show her like um, you know dusting right. the, the floors and pruning a few branches. Right. She handles. Uh, she's good for a couple. She's branches very low key. She basically. doesn't look. She doesn't look uh, tremendously um, spry. She's saving her energy
2: for for the week. Yeah,
0: she she seems fairly serious, but uh, you know she's a very nice woman. People seem to
2: love her, but she knows barbecue in and out. She gets great results, and it's really a story about her. So. Any event. I if mean, you, if you're
0: wondering what the barbecue is, it's some kind of pork, right? Yeah. And chicken, like they do half chickens. Right. Uh, sausage that they make, and uh, brisket. beautiful brisket. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful looking and the brisket. Brisket's the key. And she's making the wood oh, fire. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. She's swabbing. She's killing herself. The meat. She looks like she's not going to make it out of each session.
2: Eighty-four. Uh, she, she looks like she's not going to see eighty-five.
0: Huge shovel. Yeah. And. and
2: so we but look forward to the next episode. You just, end up. Yeah. Just nice uh, kind of loving her. Yeah. And, uh, well, it's, again, really... it's beyond loving her. It's just, it, it's, it seemed to me a very clear-eyed, straightforward, um, balanced, uh, picture of, of how this woman, uh, went through life and uh, how she's handling it and where she is in this point in life. And the answer is very gracefully. Right. And, uh, it, it really resonated. Um, for those it, of us who sit around and, and worry about, you know, what our next amusement's coming from, that's not right. really the way she right. took life. So it was interesting, but it has an eerie parallel, an eerie parallel to a story, uh, in the paper, Tams, that you found and immediately diverted to Zeke.
0: Yeah. The, in the New York Times, uh, she has 900,000 grandkids and fights big spiders. Subtitle, the gamer Shirley Curry, 84, has captured a large audience with her videos on YouTube. So what's the story here, Zeke?
1: All right. Shirley Curry is also 84 years old. It's the magic age to do your best work. I'm glad to hear that. That's what we've learned. (laughs)
2: That's right. 30 years from now, you'll Um, be there. Yes.
1: But uh, instead of focusing on barbecue, she has devoted her efforts to video Games video games uh you know which have really come a long way they're not just pac-man anymore and uh she seems to specialize uh well she seems to have a great great affection for uh, civilization that seems to be like a a game that she got into years ago and really enjoyed but maybe these days is more famous for the videos that she's made playing skyrim Uh, it's a popular game from a few years ago And, uh, you know, it it lends itself to, I guess, adventuring, but also a kind of leisurely pace. That seemed to be perhaps a a through line if you're you're both a fan of Civilization and Skyrim. It seems like, uh, you know, she's interested in exploring and and appreciating uh, the adventures the game has to offer. And I think, you know, perhaps that's part of her appeal. Uh, She's not... Your typical YouTuber offering a young person's exuberant pop culture approach, but rather, uh, you know, a more, you know, wholesome and lovable uh, grandma gamer. But, but here's vibe. here's what I didn't
2: understand. Steve. I can understand people play games, but this is not
1: an article merely Good, about great. the fact that she That's, plays games. That would be the first thing. <laughs> but
2: apparently, there are videos of her playing games. This is what I didn't understand. So what's on YouTube, if I understand it correctly? You get on YouTube, you can watch her playing a game. Is that what's going on? Mm-hmm. Do pe- there are do videos. People do of that. Video
1: games. Videos of people you can gaming. gaming. Right. Indeed. Okay. News yeah. to me. And people make money um, on this. Yeah. Wow. It's a whole profession. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're kind of. I think I think they kind of conflate these in the article, but there are. Um, you can you can kind of make it as a, a streamer that's one thing where you are streaming yourself playing the games live and you interact with people who are watching like they uh, text in like kind of a, a chat room interface and you can you know talk back to them or uh, there's also like the the YouTube approach although YouTube does a lot of streaming too which is to have recorded videos you know videos that you may have edited and put up there and uh, that also has like uh, you know its own its own sort of like following its own sort of niche. Um, and it's an interesting take on like how to experience video games. Because for one thing, like it's a way for folks to have a sort of social or communal experience around single player games. Uh, but also it's a way to get more focused on personalities. Like you see someone play a game and you see how they play it. and You see how it's unique to, to their approach and how they talk about it. And for the most entertaining of these personalities, you get you know, really invested in them the way you would uh, any other kind of creator, like the creator of a of a podcast or or a show. You know, you get really used to them. So Shirley Curry has has these sorts of relationships with her. You know, estimated nine hundred thousand uh, followers and fans. And the, uh, you know, like I said, it's in her case. It has this specific, uh, you know, grandma style to it, where she refers to them as her grandkids. They address her as grandma and uh i think people appreciate how that's how that's wholesome how that's kind of like lovable comforting you know to to engage in this activity uh with that you know with those warm fuzzy thanksgiving feelings um and it's it's interesting too that she's gotten so much out of it they they allude in the article to her not really being able to like share these interests as much with folks her own age like she you know just doesn't you know, she, has, she has people that she's she interacted with who are more her own age over time, and, and had interests with them. But like, she just doesn't find so many folks who are into this uh, stuff like she is, and so it's interesting that like, you know, the rise of streaming and uh, you know YouTube has allowed her to find like-minded people um, out there. Right. I mean,
0: she still has her quilting group. Yeah, but she has, has, she has the quilting. Group. But they don't they know anything. Don't, they about don't know
2: what her anything. Gaming. Seems yeah. to me they were describing a somewhat civilization. As, an, as an unsatisfactory experience, or not totally fulfilling experience for her. I mean, she needs the gaming. The quilting group doesn't do it for her.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't have nine hundred thousand people in the quilting group <laughs> saying you're so great. I'd love to subscribe to your content. Yeah, you know no, that's, no, listen, that's gotta be that's the uh, key. A dopamine hit. That's that's different. Yeah. and also it's, it's it's worth noting too that she has been successful enough that. Uh, she sees a response from the folks making these games that in uh, an upcoming game in the same series as Skyrim, a uh, new Elder Scrolls game, there's apparently going to be uh, some representation of Shirley Curry. There's going to be an in game character oh, wow. yeah, based on I her. I saw that, yeah. Um, working and the, on that, the creators of the game are thrilled to do this, you know, because they. They view her as, like, a, a star in their I think, Zeke, we have to pause and give
2: you props for using the word dopamine in the same sentence as quilting. That hasn't happened too often. So, that all right. So, uh, yeah, that is interesting. I mean, she's not doing brisket, but, uh, but she's doing all right. Uh, so, uh, switching to Tom Seaver. We're not going to dwell on Tom Seaver too much because he's gotten a lot of press already. Tom Seaver was a great pitcher for the Mets who passed away. Superstar led him to their first uh, World Series victory. Went, team went from worst to first. Uh, let me just say one thing about Tom Seaver that's, that's kind of unique, and I'm not going to bore you with statistics. And this is something that people debate in sports all the time, which is, can one player make other players better? And that's the question that Tom Seaver raises to me. And particularly as he was a pitcher, because generally you don't think of pitchers as having too much influence on the game more broadly, on the other players. When you look at the team leader, it's generally a position player who plays every day, position mm-hmm. there every fifth day. But Tom Seaver was the leader of the Mets. He was a superstar and a superstar personality. And you, I get my feeling is from having observed him and reading all these articles, is that. He had a lot to do with the Mets winning, quite apart from his own individual skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a thing. You know, when people talk about it, about who makes other people better, that's a true superstar. I mean, you know, I love DeGrom, who's the Mets' great pitcher now. But the team doesn't win when DeGrom pitches. They happen to win today. But he wins like (laughs) 10 games a year. Mm is winning 23 games a year. And Jerry Grody, his catcher himself, a tough guy from Texas, said Tom doesn't uh, pitch every fifth day. He 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 wins every fifth day. Mm-hmm. That's what his mission is. And I'll just tell one totally quick story. That tells you I mean he basically, again, according to Grody, we played harder when Siever pitched. We had to pay attention. We had to be on our toes or he was going to give us what for? He was a legend. And Stever uh, eventually had to play for a couple other teams. That's a whole sad story in and of itself, but he actually uh, was in New York pitching for the White Sox when he was pitching against the Yankees to try to win his 300th game, 300 being a magic number. And he gets to the, um, uh, late in the game, seventh or eighth inning. And there's a critical moment, and Dave Winfield's up himself, a great hitter. And, uh, he's tired. The, the kind of, the point in the game, many pitchers would come out of the game. Tony Larusa, very famous manager, uh, sends his pitching coach out to talk to Seaver. And uh, the pitching coach says, Tom, I think you've had enough. And Seaver says, Yeah, I don't think I have anything left. And Carlton Fisk is the catcher who's on the mound. And 99 times out of 100, you say, fine, great job. We'll get the next guy up. Carl Fix turns to him and says, hey, hey, you've had enough. This is your ballgame. Nobody's coming in from the bullpen to get Dave Winfield. You are your Tom Seaver. And he goes, oh, okay. And he takes the ball and he strikes out Winfield and he wins the game. And what's interesting to me about that is, I mean, Carlton Fisk, again, was a Hall of Fame player. He's not some kid. But in everybody else's mind in the major leagues, Tom Seaver was a legend. And Fisk was acting like a fan would act, like saying, what do you mean you've had enough? Have you forgotten who you are? And so, to me, just amazing. Anyway, Tom Seaver is a great loss for the Mets and, uh, he's been sick for some time, but still a loss. Okay. Zeke and Tamsin, you two were, were, got together on another article about pools, right?
0: Yeah, well, we're a pretty aquacentric uh, family. You're like mother and son, the two of you. It's it's, it's <laughs> like you got the same DNA, you, right? Um, and uh, I noticed an article, another article in the New York Times, and this one was entitled "Can Public Pools Deter Violence?" All right, Zeke, what do you say? Yes. <laughs> okay.
2: So we're done with that. <laughs> so how how's, how is that possible, Zeke? Come on, seriously.
1: Well, I mean, how are you going to rob someone when uh, you're in a pool? Well, I guess, it just doesn't work. There's got to be more to it's it. It's impractical. I think uh, there's something... The goal really is to fill the streets with pools so that there's nowhere you can mug someone.
2: question is, uh, yeah, do, 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 do the pools diffuse the tensions that otherwise plague a city during a hot summer?
1: Yeah, that's that's what they're getting at in this article. Um, and the article maybe is uh, overambitious in the sense that you know it, it just really wants us to to be convinced of that but there's never any sort of like clear causal link that they present in any of the right. information there's not there's not some sort of study that says like you know you once once the body is exposed to chlorine this number of times per week like crime becomes impossible that's not a thing that they're able to find but they do just try to give the kind of uh i guess lots of, of kind of like stories kind of like keep uh circling around this idea of like there's a correlation uh between lower crime and more public pools and it's uh, you know to me like the correlation isn't so moving but really just the the kind of uh more general idea uh, in terms of urban development where you say we want uh, you know public resources like this we want opportunities for people to enjoy their city and we want uh, ways for kids to relax and blow off steam and that seems to be a general public good that seems to have a positive impact, how, you know, it does probably doesn't have a direct relationship to crime, but probably does have an indirect one in the sense that you're making the city better and you're helping the people in it.
0: Right. I mean, the the, the article cites a, um, a study or um, I guess you'd call it a, a study done under uh, um, the, um, during the time of uh, Lyndon Johnson's presidency, uh, examining the causes of race riots in cities, you know, in in 1967, okay? And the findings um, uh, included that, uh, or concluded, that solutions might be found, okay, in the delivery of more robust social services, better and safer neighborhoods, and more sensitive policing, Although Johnson largely ignored this advice, urbanists did not. Before the country defaulted to mass incarceration in the 1980s as its chief means of managing crime, civic leaders often looked toward imaginative uses of public space and design to deter violence. So doesn't that resonate with a lot of what people are well, talking it about today? I, I actually
2: think it's, uh, I wouldn't agree with the way that sentence is put. I mean, I don't think uh, anybody defaulted to mass incarceration. There was no default all, right, all right, let's
0: not get into so that. Kind of but let's dumb. just say but, that Lindsay made a push, yeah. okay, to provide more swimming pools. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. In a, in a couple of different ways. Yeah, right. they In 1966, they actually built Lasker Rink. Which was the first pool right. that, uh, it, it can be a pool, it can be a rink. Right. And it's okay? up in 110 or something like that. Um, right? And, uh, and, uh, he also devised a thing where you had mobile pools, mm-hmm. mini pools, um, just plopped down in streets. All I, I, I over find it the city. Totally plausible. To give people a chance to I, cool I, I, in, you know, I to think cool out, relax. idea
2: of, of pools and other resources that people, can enjoy themselves can you know whether it's letting off steam or just being with family enriching your life in a meaningful way i think that's highly important highly significant uh and uh whether we were denied that opportunity this summer because of coronavirus or whether we're going to be denied that opportunity in the future because of budget cuts i don't know but it'll be a great loss if it is
0: well the thing is Crime has gone up in New York City. Yeah. But this so, as you said, it's so hard, some people are saying, well, it doesn't help. You know, it doesn't help. Pools mm-hmm. open late. Yeah. Only 15 out of 53 pools are, Look,
2: pools are, were are open. a big deal. But, see, you're a Brooklyn kid and you know that mm-hmm. the pools were huge in Brooklyn, weren't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I had some interactions with public pools in Brooklyn and it was always such an odd uh, sort of aspect of the city to interact with because it was, you know, by turns, this great public resource and this totally neglected one you would have actually some impressive facilities but you would often find like okay you know here's this you know big pool or this kind of nice building this recreation center um but it was you know it must have been a huge investment when it was built but it was built like you know whatever 30 50 six years ago. Well, you know, McCarran Pool, um, you went
0: to McCarran Pool, And it right? could be
1: in, in poor quality. Yeah, McCarran Pool was, I guess it was totally rebuilt, right? It was, it yeah. was I think it existed a long time ago yeah. and but they shut it down and ended up rebuilding it. It was uh, it was first built
0: um, as part of the WPA program. You know, remember the WPA, uh, Works mm, Progress Administration, yeah. you know, had all these projects going on to give people work after the Depression, right. okay, to, as a matter of recovery. And, uh, a lot of pools were built as a result of that. Um, and it's kind of, it was. it's a huge pool. They, I, I yeah. read that it has a capacity of like 6,800
2: right, people. But it's not
1: just swimming. I mean, didn't they have concerts in Brooklyn at the pool, Zeke? Wasn't that a big deal? Yeah, they did events there. I remember that. I don't know if I intended any of those uh, events, but I did go to the pool a couple of times. Um, and it is a big pool, and it's nice. And it's, it's this nice, like, uh, counterpart to McCarran Park there. And, it you know like in the summer when it when it's you know most desirable it seems like this logical counterpart to the park you, you look at the park and you say like well how could you not have this you know yeah. it's it's a critical thing for so many people in the area just tons of people are always going through there always using it as a place to relax as a place to be with family uh, as a place to socialize it's it's like an essential tool in that way and the pool you know it it makes sense that there would also be a big pool to go with it and you'd see tons and tons of people use it in the summertime um but again it's it would always struck me that that it was uh i don't know like it was it was not clearly it was not unambiguously celebrated by the city i would say for example at one point i was trying to uh, book time at the mccarran uh pool for uh like a water polo practice uh, i ended up booking time at a, at a different city pool but it was a real hassle just to even try to get the administration's uh, attention about it and try to use this pool they kind of initially brushed me off with some uh, city officials saying oh well that's a very popular pool uh, you know i don't see how you could find time and then i pointed out to him like look the time i want on the schedule is uh, a time when a third of the pool is being used for lap swimming and the other two two-thirds of the pool are empty and i don't think he even knew that you know like that was that's kind of the, what's weird about this to me is that like i think we we can all like easily say like okay this pool is great we love to use this pool and then so often we have, you know, like city governments that like, you know, if you push them to pay attention, maybe are interested in these projects. Maybe if there's uh, a surge of, of funding and interest, these things happen. But then in other periods of time, they get totally ignored. Right. Well, you know, and, they can, and they can fall happened. into disrepair I mean, or are misused. That,
0: that pool, you know, was kind of uh, languishing. A lot of the pools were languishing until... Lindsay, John Lindsay, uh, mayor, takes an interest in the late 60s, early 70s. Then there's kind of a revival. And then, you know, it's a budgetary thing, too. People, you know, it it seems like a luxury. All right. Mm. And so funds disappear to keep up the maintenance of these things. But if you can, if you really relate it to people's, you know, mental health, well-being, etc., it's not such a luxury, yeah. and no, I think I, like, I that's what this do. article is trying okay. to say: that we should, you know, yeah. pay attention to these facilities, spend money on things like this, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, it's preferable to um, you yeah, forced incarceration. Well, it's,
2: it's, I don't see that trade-off, but 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 I do see that it's it's an investment worth making, and and I do uh, just on Zeke's point: yes, the city is a hopeless bureaucracy, as many cities are
0: and i do believe that water swimming yeah look it's it's obviously you know, something that will benefit everybody many 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 things okay it's probably my turn yeah um so there's a an article in the wall street journal today um under that masterpiece section on the back page of the review section where they talk about some masterpiece the masterpiece today is a song called land of hope and glory Written in 1902 by Edward Elgar, and so I look at this and I say, "Well, it's a masterpiece," and yet I've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out I have heard of it. It's pomp and circumstance. You, want to give you know us a that few bars? that little tune we right. hear at all the graduations, right? right? Um, you can hum a few bars, but uh, no one will recognize it, Dan. Yes. I think uh, let's uh, you know everybody knows what this is, and so. The article just tells the this, this story what's going on currently. This apparently, this song, is much beloved by uh, the Brits. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, they have in the summers a, uh, there's a, um, something called the BBC Proms. Okay. It's a series of summer concerts that go mm-hmm. on for eight weeks. And culminates in a big final concert where part of the tradition is to play this full piece of music. All right, it, um, it was a larger piece of music, and embedded in it are is the bits that becomes this popular mm-hmm. um, patriotic song. Okay, and uh, when they are talking about doing this uh, concert series this year. And they're doing it virtually or whatever. Um, uh, No, it says, um, well, the concert, the final concert will be played in the Royal Albert Hall, where it usually is, but audience free, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And um, they were going to, you know, um, they were trying to decide, do we play this song? Because it is all about uh, kind of... um, British imperialism mm-hmm. uh, of, we might say, a bygone day. I mean, here are the words. Land of hope and glory, mother of the free, how shall we extol thee who are born of thee? Wider still and wider shall thy bounds be set. God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. Well, All right, means just- almost nothing to me. Well, okay. no,
2: that feels like you were trying to expand your universe
0: and empire. Sure. So some people thought this wasn't the right tone at this moment. Okay. But people love the song, right? Uh, people, but people love the song, and so they said, "Okay, oh. we'll play the song, but we won't have any singing." No and people went crazy. Yeah. that. So now we got to have the singing. So of course, I had to go on the YouTube. Yeah and look at um, videos of people singing, of and it turns past out. Past recordings right. of this moment when it's played mm-hmm. in the Royal Albert Hall, right. okay? People are in the Royal Albert, but they're also all over Hyde Park, right. which is right, uh, so right there. So you have tons of people. So you have zillions <laughs> of people. Uh, and it's traditional that, you know, right. they, you know they have uh, you know legit orchestra or whatever playing right. uh, the song. And at the appropriate moments... Everybody joins in and sings the words. Even at the beginning, in the instrumental, people are bouncing up and down in their seats, right. and they're waving their flags. And then when you get to, um, the song part, they just, you know, go crazy. You know, it's, uh, it's not like when, you know, when we're all kind of struggling through, um, the stars Four and stripes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, Star Spangled Banner. Right. I'm tripping on my own words here. Uh, but it's more, it's amazingly heartfelt celebration of this well, look, song.
2: That I can understand the issue. But um, of course, you know, if people love singing it and they go crazy, uh, you're not going to be able to stop. I mean, the idea of saying we're not going to do the singing is just not going to fly, and it didn't really fly here. So uh, that's not a, a huge surprise. Uh, and yet, it's also not a huge surprise that the uh, lyrics that were written you know, hundreds of years ago, uh don't really uh, resonate in the same way today and uh, aren't exactly politically correct. I get that too.
0: But uh they have a um scholar here who says it has the hallmarks of a great community song. Instantly memorable, easy to sing, and with enough gravity to suggest ritual. It's one of those secular oh, sure. rituals. Oh, I mean, that we gravity seen. to suggest ritual. It is ritual. Yeah.
2: I mean, okay. I, you know, I,
0: I, 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 obviously it's totally ritual. It's a ritual that people are getting excited about. But people need even, ritual. I agree. Okay. With that. But right. that's what it is. But it's it is a, still funny to me that I can hear this all my life and I didn't know yeah. what it but was. It's also
2: funny that people react so strongly to the song and feel so strongly about it and have to have it. And, uh, you know, and under those circumstances, it's not going to be easily cast aside. And it's not being. Well, here's something which is just totally unusual and weird. There's something I, I sort of picked up a few years ago, and the Times happened to write an article about it today. So the, there's an, a theater called MCC Theater who every year sponsors uh, something. It's off Broadway uh, called Miscast, in which um, performers, very famous Broadway performers, get the opportunity to play, usually to sing roles that they would, for which they would never be cast. Uh, they would never be cast. Isn't it
0: a fundraiser?
2: Uh, yeah, it's a fundraiser. Uh, so, they would never be cast because, uh, because they're female roles and they're male, because they're older and it calls for a young person, because they just don't have the right look. I mean, there are, you know, there's some people, some roles that you would never play. And, um, yet, yeah, there's really good songs and, and the folks who participate well, in Well, it's it, just fun to switch it uh, around. Yeah, you get, switch it up and s- see, see it, if it works. But more than the, the, the fact that it's, it's fun to watch, uh, the performers really want to do it. All right, so you have the, they have some examples here of what they've done in the past, and they, you know, for example, they have Lin Manuel Miranda and Raul Esparza uh, singing uh, a boy like that from West Side Story. Well, you know, that's a song that's sung between Maria and Anita about a boy like that. You know, a boy like that being Tony. He's a bad guy. You shouldn't have anything to do with him, Maria. You should stick right, to your. You don't own have kind. to tell
0: us the whole story, well, it's, but, but, but it's it's an iconic, right. you know. So, Latin it's flavored a song. song for women That's, to sing. Right. But it's not and a here song. you have two guys yeah. in their
2: 40s singing the song. <laughs> but I'm sure they do a heck of a job. I'll have to look it up. I will say that I think Sadie put me on to this. The first one I saw, and I didn't even realize it was in this cast, was uh, Jonathan Groff uh, did uh, Anything Goes from the production with Sutton Foster. It's a song and dance number uh, in which he not just sings, but dances uh Exactly the way Sutton Foster dances. It's amazing with just a few people. They do the number.
0: Apparently, right. it's... Right, had, so this all sounds well, like fun.
2: Apparently, they've had over 2.2 million views of this, so it's not a small thing.
0: Almost as many as Grandma on uh, Skyrim, yeah. okay? all right. So, anyway, I've seen... The, anyway, they, they they're going to stream this live yeah. on September 13th. Right. So, it sounds like something really fun uh, right. to watch. And actually... Isn't it this uh, concept that kind of gave birth, perhaps helped give birth to the, um, the gender-vetting version right? of yeah. company? No, I don't think so. Uh, the
2: Times think so, but I don't.
0: Uh, I, but I would well, say that, that... You would certainly know better than right. the Times.
2: Times, they, they just throw it out there. They don't have the slightest idea of this, I'm guessing. But uh, the one I've seen that I think is the best is I saw Norbert Leo Butts, who's in this every year, do uh, the song for Dreamgirls, and I am telling you that I'm not going. If you can imagine him singing the Jennifer Holiday song. And it is oh, unbelievable. you can see yeah. that online? Yeah. It is so unbelievable. So why didn't you ever show me? And at the end, Jennifer Holiday comes out and shakes his hand. <laughs> so it's something worth seeing. All right. Okay, so,
0: September 13th. Right. So, Zeke, Mulan.
1: Mulan. What a film. You're in charge of well, youth there's... films for us. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well,. it's it's, it's not much of a transition but i'll roll with it so uh mulan as you may know is uh once again a movie uh a new movie coming out now whatever that means at this particular moment i think perhaps somewhere there are cinemas open to some degree um but it's uh ostensibly part of this uh you know disney uh trend process uh business strategy of remaking their uh uh Animated films, uh, in live action, special effects uh, for uh, just you know new ticket sales. Um, Right. Kind of like remaking all these films. Uh, But what particularly interested me was an article in the Times that talked about how this is not the first time that Mulan has been remade because, of course, Mulan isn't just a story of Disney's creation. It's rather a legend of its own with a long history, and it has had many adaptations over time into poems into plays into uh, you know movies musicals uh, all these things and it has uh, you know taken on different forms over time um, part of the reason this this article stood out to me was not just that interesting kind of you know historical arc but specifically one of the things that I find a little off-putting about this new version of Mulan that's coming out now from Disney is that it's not a musical so it's not just uh, taking the movie that came out some years ago and making it all over again uh, with you know live action, it's really taking a different take on that story. It's going a different direction with it and saying, you know, well at the time for that animated feature we thought that a musical was the way to go, but for this we're not doing that, and that's I don't know kind of stands out. And it's to me it seems like a little bit of a shame. I'm not necessarily a huge Mulan fan or a big fan of the music exactly, but uh, I was like, oh that seems I don't know, kind of too bad. It makes it less distinctive. But it was interesting to see this article and see how, uh, you know, there have really been these very different takes over time. The idea of doing just a different Mulan than whatever was done last time, you know, has a lot of precedent. In some versions of Mulan, uh, she's a brave, the main character is a a brave soldier fighting for her countries. In other versions, she's actually a general. Uh, Sometimes uh, the, you know, Mulan comes home and, and returns to. Uh, her kind of normal non-soldier life uh, and her her normal uh, ex- normal expectations for a woman at that time in that society. But in other versions, she uh, bravely commits suicide. Um, so there's been pretty big shifts and they're, and there, you know, obviously it's, it's to some extent to suit the like tastes and interests of the time in a way, right? Like if you want to uh, send a message that you know if like, even someone even a hero who breaks the rules ultimately respects the rules then maybe you end the story with her uh you know coming back to her original role um and if you want to send you know kind of send a message of, of women being especially tough and empowered then you might emphasize her her role as a soldier and the combat that she's involved in yeah. um well i thought it, it was can, it i thought it was a, more, a great you know, article
0: yeah um, and i was fascinated by uh you know uh the history of the story and how it was depicted in various media, you know, over centuries, you know, um, especially like in uh, there was, I guess there was a play written in the 16th century where she actually has bound feet, because mm. ladies had bound feet. Now, how you go into battle with bound feet, you know, uh, that's got to be a challenge. Uh,
1: Different boots. Um,
0: so there was, uh, you know, uh, a lot of interesting ways of having her, like... I guess it's part of the theme seemed to be breaking the rules, but not threatening the system. Mm. And that's that's why the story seems to succeed in China, where the system, you know, is paramount. Uh, so, uh, you know, I thought it, uh, it was... Um, well, I will, I will tell you,
2: I don't disagree with any of that, but I'll tell you that in the Times-Review... It felt like was that Manola Dorgus, the time did, yes was uh, I think she felt that it wasn't enough women's uh, assertiveness uh, uh, theme in it for her taste uh, and as for the uh, music so you, I think if you keep on with Miss miscast you're gonna see Norbert Leo Butts eventually sing all the Mulan songs so you can pay attention to that So. All right.
1: <laughs> and they didn't bring back Eddie Murphy you know yeah Missing out, missing out all those great qualities. Yeah. Of, um, uh, can I just ask you, you've seen Milan? I've seen the, the earlier Disney version. Well, yeah, the original. Not really and how many? Original, po- original, but the rank it from one to ten, 10 Z.
2: how many points? Oh. Give it an eight? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't rank it that high.
1: It's really, it's it's not super high ranking for me. I thought it was like fine, but was, I was not that into it. Over years, I mean like basically other people who are bigger fans of it pointed out some of its uh, like stronger musical numbers to me. And I, you know, I, I kind of warmed to it a little bit over time. Um, but I don't know. I could I could revisit it and see what I think about it. I'm not sure I would enjoy the new one. Like I said, the idea that it's not a musical is a bit of a, a turn off. But with all these like Disney movies, even just from one Disney movie to another, they're always doing that that same they're always like, you know, reevaluating that same way. So in that case, you know, in that sense, Disney's part of this longer tradition of always like reevaluating legends and making new ways yeah. to portray them. Um and some of those issues like you were alluding to with you know the Uh, I guess Manola Dargis brought up of like female empowerment in Mulan. That's something that Disney has really wrestled with. And that's something where they very much want to show someone rebelling, but not too much, right? That's always an issue for Disney heroines is like, we want her to be strong, but we want her to, you know, not alienate, you know, some kind of uh, audience or not uh, undermine what we think is, is this sort of value. And you see that, that change with heroines over time. So I just thought like, it was an interesting article for how it kind of connects, you know, Disney's wrestling with that to a much longer tradition.
0: Right, right. We think we invented, uh, you know, uh, gender exploration, <laughs> and yeah. yet uh, this is a story that uh, mm-hmm. goes back yeah, hundreds, true. thousands of years. Okay. Speaking uh, of Speaking of gender of, exploration. No, speaking of. Yeah. Asian. Um, Major generals who are women. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Thailand. Yeah. Okay. And uh, in Thailand, uh, we have uh, quite a uh, an excitement going on because the king of Thailand has actually reinstated his royal consort, who just you know a, a few months ago was stripped of all. Her, you know, honors and titles and position and disappeared completely um, and, uh, you know, was kind of drummed out of the service and now has suddenly reemerged and is back in the job. You may be asking, what is the position of royal consort? Okay. Yes. What is right. the
2: position of royal consort?
0: Well, you know, it's hard to uh, pin that down. This is from an article in the New York Times. The New York Times doesn't really uh, address that. Now, often you will see, like, the spouse of a, of royalty described as the consort, mm-hmm. the king or queen's royal consort. Okay. This is not the case. The king has a wife. Okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's been through four wives. All right, this is another position, royal consort. When I Googled it and went to Wikipedia, Wikipedia calls uh, it the royal concubine. Well, there we go, which gives us an entirely different Oh no, tone. not me. Okay, I, mean, yeah, I was there from the right. beginning. This, yeah. this is bizarre to be. Yeah. This is completely bizarre. The idea that a king in the 21st century yeah. has a wife and. A little something, something going on the side. Well, the fact okay. that he's a king, Wait, to, who, who has to you a, in that direction, who has basically. an actual position yeah. in well, the government, yeah. okay? She was an army nurse. Um, her name is uh, pretty hard to pronounce. I'm going to call her <laughs> Miss Sina. No, I, I don't. It, the. Uh, these names, the names from Thailand are just uh, very challenging, right. meaningful to them and important, but challenging to right. uh, somebody like myself. Okay. Um, she was actually an army nurse. Right. Okay. But now she's a major general. Um, and uh, it's not clear what her, you know, role is. Um, It's not clear what the king's role is, to be honest. He lives not in Thailand, but in Germany. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's loaded. Okay. He's worth billions of dollars. Okay. At, at one point, um, you know, one of his, uh, planes was impounded or something by another country because uh, money was owed. Uh, etc and he offered to just pay the bill it was millions of dollars that uh you know Thailand uh, owned Germany or something like that I mean it's a crazy crazy story he's been married to his cousin he's been married to an actress uh he is, you know, he's, he's you know he's his only third marriage about he got tired T-T-T-T-Tamsin. of her he had his whole he had her whole family thrown in jail for insulting the king Tamsin. The only thing that's crazy about the story
2: is she's a consort. And and you know, a lot of people go through a lot of wives, a lot of countries owe a lot of money, a lot of kings are rich. But but the thing I know, that, and
0: a lot of kings and fool around on the side. Right. Okay? Well, I don't
2: know about that. But, but maybe, she
0: has a government position. Okay. Well that's yes this, this that's, is like I agree with you, that's this is the unusual like, you know, thing. Yeah. We're back in the days of uh, you know Madame Pompadour. Ooh, come back, all right?
2: He's the King of Thailand, all right. So it's it's going to be a little bit different. It's it's not like he's the prime minister. You of should Austria. see the pictures of him.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's he's quite fit. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. He has tattoos. Yeah. All right. Um, for sixty-seven. Listen, he, he looks, looks vigorous. Good. I'm sure. I'm. I hope he's taking advantage of the situation. The fact of the matter is but apparently he's king. moody okay because he gives this woman the position then the next thing you know she's out of a job yeah. they don't even know if she's alive and then suddenly she pops well, up she must have done once something again, impressive you
2: know, to get back in his he, good graces we he actually gave her imagine. the position what?
0: right after he married his fourth wife i mean I all mean, right all right i, all right, all right. So I can't let me understand how these things work i just have to finish the story though so i'm I'm telling you this story as we're walking across a bridge on our bike ride, okay? We have to get off the bikes, walk across the bridge. I'm telling you this story, okay? And, Zeke, he wasn't at all interested in the story, okay? And I'm giving it my best, and finally I give up. And I say, okay, he's not interested. I'm going to move on to another subject. I'd recently been to the knee doctor, and so I just remarked, you know, everything's easier with cortisone. And your father says, yeah, I've never quite understood the difference between, uh, what is a, what is a cortisone anyway? <laughs> well, <laughs> cortisone and a cortisone. You, you know, you were deeply into the, the concubine
2: subject. And, and I you said, said cortisone. It's pretty similar. To
0: cortisone. I said, you're absolutely right. Probably. Yeah. Everything is easier with a cortisone. Yeah. As well.
2: Yeah. All right. Okay.
0: But I was thinking cortisone. Yeah. All right. So
2: there's a connection that often made. So uh, we're kind of going on here at some length. So I'm just going to skip this practically. I'll just mention this one thing. I was going to talk about sports. I won't. But uh, I'll say this. The the basketball and hockey playoffs are going on. Uh, and it turns out that the ratings are extremely high. I know you've been reading article against or after article about how Sports rely on the fans. They're missing the fans. They're missing everything. And that is 180 degrees wrong. The basketball playoffs are better than they've ever been. The hockey playoffs are better than they've ever been. People are watching them. They're great. Is it because um, there are a lot of reasons for that? One is it's less distracting with the fans. The game moves along. Uh, another is that the players are getting a lot of rest. We talked about athletes getting rest. They're not traveling on plane every day. They're not distracted by you know all the multimedia going on. They're getting the rest, they're getting nutrition, and they're playing tremendous basketball in particular. It's amazing. So if you get a chance, uh, you're not losing anything uh, in terms of the playoffs this year, and those sports in particular, I recommend the basketball playoffs.
0: But what is the story about the tennis, where they say, um, now without the fans, you can hear the coaches actually I, coaching, I don't watch that much and that's forbidden? Yeah, yeah.
2: Is that really happening? I, look, I, I've never really, I, I don't watch the tennis, I can't tell you. But uh, I also don't think that's that's an important rule, honestly. I mean, wh- wh- why is it so important that the coaches don't coach during the matches? I can't understand it. Every other sport, the coaches do coach during the matches. So,
1: can they get away with doing the coaching if all the advice they're saying is bad advice? Well, uh,
2: that's that's an interesting question you might raise. I, I actually look my theory of coaching, even sports in which totally permissible is the only useful coaching can be done before the event. When, in the middle of the event, when so much is going on, and the athlete is under enormous pressure, uh, and there's a lot of noise and all that stuff, so you can't really expect the athlete to be able to concentrate on uh, different themes or how they might approach things. They can't intellectualize anything. Uh, it's got to be muscle memory at that point. So I'm I'm not a big advocate of any kind of coaching during the event.
0: So there got go. it. All okay. right, but you did wake up with a stiff neck.
1: Yeah. And what is that this do? morning?
0: I don't know. I, I was going to ask Zeke. Zeke read an article about computer injuries
1: yes see go ahead computer I mean, injuries. Really computer injuries i don't you know it's not like dad's computer is injured it's uh <laughs> it's you know maybe all, like office lifestyle injuries i don't know i don't know what you called it but they're basically like orthopedic injuries of some form or another um this that, is a subject that, that,
0: that, that happen when you're working on the computer yeah
1: sure uh this is a subject that you know we alluded to a little bit in an earlier episode Longtime fans of the podcast remember a few episodes ago when we talked about uh gaming chairs and how they had uh all these ergonomic considerations for how they were designed in an attempt to work for uh people who are sitting in them for many hours at a time um people who are you know playing video games professionally or, or streaming for long periods of time and uh I mentioned that you know a lot of people have these problems now, and sure enough, here's an article in the Times talking about how a lot of people do have these problems. They have a hard time quantifying it exactly, but they say that in talking to some uh, experts of ergonomics, orthopedics, chiropractic, all that stuff, uh, it seems like there's a, a rise in these injuries, and it makes sense insofar as people are working from home. There's a lot of folks with uh, office jobs who aren't going into the office, but instead are sitting on their couch with their laptop hunched over that screen, Um, you know, sitting in some uncomfortable chair, working, sitting in some chair that seems comfortable, but really is doing something bad to your back.
0: Mainly Um, sitting.
1: Yeah. Sitting
0: all day. And uh, in the article I mentioned, you know, we're not really made to sit all day. All right, so it's going no. The to... human body is not
1: necessarily well suited to to doing that. Yeah. Not not all day. Not in the same position. Certainly not in some of the bad positions that we find ourselves in. They note in the article how really you want to uh, have your your arms down. If you uh, if your hands are kind of like up high to reach over the edge of a table to reach some keyboard, that can be put a strain on your wrists. Uh, they note how you shouldn't be looking down um, because that tends you tends to make you arch your, uh, curve your your neck and your uh, back, and that puts more pressure on the discs in your back. uh, That can wear out your your neck muscles too, that can cause pain. Um, Laptops are, you know, disasters for this because the screen is right next to the keyboard. So chances are, like, if your you know if your arms are in a comfortable position, then your head is not. If your head is in a comfortable position, then your arms are not. Yeah. So um, you should get a
0: separate keyboard for your. Get a separate uh, keyboard. Yeah, get a
1: separate mouse. Um, lift the screen up uh, so that it's you know you don't have to look down so much to see it. Um, I don't I don't remember if they talk too much about uh, you know, standing desks in this article, but it seems like that's something that might come in handy a little bit just to get you to stand up straight a little bit more. Um, but they definitely mention making sure that you move. Uh, that's a good thing to do. You know, you don't want to be in some position, even if it's decent for, you know, like many hours at a time. They use examples of people who have a timer for, you know, getting up and moving every 30 minutes, something like that. Just walking around a little bit, stretching. Uh, and, uh, and, and also they mention that getting, you know, just regular uh, exercise in the ordinary sense helps too. You just want to have your... Your body doing, you know, things that are movements that are good for it, being in positions that are good for it, and don't hold anything for too terribly long. Well, but this is, a, this is a problem for a lot of people now. I mean, they're probably, the, probably the, yeah. the
0: unspoken, the underlying concept here is remote working is not good for your health. You need to be <laughs> well, still I mean, in I the think office these people were walking doing, around. Uh, Kibitzing by the water fountain, getting up to use the restroom. That's, that, that's, that's not yeah. right. Yeah, I think what that's, was
2: that's where say, we're going here. What Zeke he was about to say was all the stuff people are doing at home at a computer. Is something they were doing in the office on a computer, so he's a, no, he's no, yeah, they, they were
1: doing anything. it to some extent in the office. I think, I think they were. I mean, you definitely had this is not like you know, these are not novel issues. It's not that people said, like, oh no, all of a sudden we're doing these things, which is why a lot of standing desks desk have been sold office. to offices, yeah. Um, yeah. you know. The, that was all,
0: um, but I think it's exacerbated. It, it, standing desks are not good for you, it, it turns out. Well, they're not as good for you as everything's bad for you, okay. But <laughs> all right, we got to move along here, okay. Who's next? Me. Yes, you. How about that? Um, just, uh, quickly, uh, another sad loss, Julia Reed, uh, a journalist who covered politics, food, and the South passed away. And I really wasn't familiar with her name at all and, uh, began to look at some of the articles she was writing. She, you know, she was a larger than life personality. Um, she grew up in Greenville, Mississippi. Her mother, you know, was, um, a, you know lady from a prominent Nashville family her father Clark Reed was a businessman and Republican power broker but the, the point is she wrote these great articles about uh, southern life and she was just she was a pip she was uh, um, kind of uh, um, sociable uh, interesting she you um, talked about, uh, you know, sort of the Southern culture in a way that uh, I wasn't really familiar. I mean, it seems like uh, a, a whole nother word world to someone like me who grew up uh, in the Middle Atlantic states. I have to say, though, she did go to school at Madeira, which was a rival school of my school, Holton, and she actually got her start in journalism because her the headmistress of her school, Jean Harris... Murdered oh, really. her lover, really. Dr. Herman Tarnauer, yeah, the that. celebrity doctor and, creative, and creator of the Scarsdale diet. diet. Yeah. Okay. So that's how she gets started. She's like answering phones at Newsweek and somebody finds out she, uh, um, went to Madeira, goes, went to Madeira yeah. and they send her over there to cover the wow. story. One way to get a story. One thing yeah. leads to another. Right. I saw, read a very fun article, um, that she wrote. She, uh, she wrote many articles for the New York Times. She was also um, worked for Garden and Gun, a um, Southern publication, <laughs> a Southern lifestyle publication. Really, yes. Garden and Gun. Garden and Gun, and um, she, um, what was I going to say? She wrote. Uh, there's a fun article in the New York Times two two thousand three called "Hostess Cupcakes," and it's this great article about when she was growing up, women wore hostess gowns. so when you had a party you had special sort of almost like a robe that you put on to receive people uh it's kind of it's kind of a super elegant schmada kind of thing uh, that you wore instead of a a cocktail dress so you're wearing it because you were cooking or something so it's were because you were the hostess okay and uh, it has a very funny bit in it where, um, from a Lucille, an I Love Lucy show, yeah. where Lucy is recommending to Fred yeah. that he buy, you know, eventually hostess gowns become other things like hostess pants, yeah. right? Uh, different kinds of outfits as, as time marches on. And uh, Fred is um, trying to figure out what to buy Ethel for her birthday, yeah. and uh, Lucy recommends hostess pants yeah. and it's just kind of hilarious uh, they're these wide leg flowing kind of pajama pants imagine Ethel in yeah, them right. um, you know uh, but anyway great that's a fun article hot hostess cupcakes by Julia Reed and the times also printed some of her recipes including hot cheese olives
2: yeah oh Oof. Well, questionable I guess if you got the right outfit on you can pull it off um, I guess if you're at a cocktail party, right. you so, can pull it off. Uh, another notable passing here as we head toward the conclusion is um, John Thompson died. So John Thompson was the uh, basketball coach at Georgetown. Again, I mean, cut this as short as I can, but he, he they didn't have much of a basketball program. Uh, they used to lose all their games. They brought him in, and within two or three years, they were a major basketball program. His background is that he was a, a star center for Providence College. Tom Walsh's school and then he went to the Celtics and he had the distinction of being the backup center for Bill Russell one of the perhaps the greatest player in NBA history and what that tells you is that John Thompson never played never played because <laughs> Bill Russell played all the time they never put right. John in but he became friends with Bill Russell and uh, it's a good friend to have uh, he had a lot of connections in the game he recruited very well like Patrick Ewing and the like but here's what John Thompson is as famous for as much as anything else he did, of course, win a championship in 84. But in 1982, and some would call one of the most famous basketball games in the history of the NCAA, the following happened. It is the game in which Michael Jordan became famous. Michael Jordan uh, was uh, the game, uh, North Carolina was down by one. There was 30 seconds left. Michael Jordan, a young player from North Carolina, they passed the ball to him. He hits the critical shot. Now they're winning the national championship game. There's 15 seconds left, and everybody anoints Michael Jordan the next great player, except what people forget that there were 15 seconds left. And what happens? Georgetown's got the ball, plenty of time to win the game. They bring it down the court. Fred Brown, one of their key players, is the guard. He dribbles. He looks around. He turns to his right, and he passes to a player on the other team. In other words, there was nothing. There was no defense going on, nothing. He had a a mind cramp it's I've never seen anything like it no one's ever seen anything like it in a major sport event like this he looked at someone in a blue uniform and thought they were in a white uniform and he handed him the ball and they lost the game they lost the championship and just like that it was over and famously John Thompson walked out on the court and hugged Fred Brown and that's when John Thompson became an icon in basketball history uh so any event that was a great loss the um final article we have is an article on, on what it means to have a good life. And I think we all had a chance to look at this, and there's a lot of Greek in it, so it's a little hard for me to really interpret that. Uh, but the, often, according to the author, Alison Gopnik, uh, people feel that the major alternatives in considering what's a good life is choosing between the so-called uh, hedonistic life on the one hand uh, but hedonic. Hedonic. You're right. Hedonistic's the wrong word. Hedonic's the right word. Free from pain and full of everyday pleasure. Calm, safe, and serene. Uh, but, uh, as opposed to, uh, another possibility, a virtuous life full of meaning, that's an alternative. You know that word? Eudemonic. Is that the word? Yes, I yes. think so. And, uh, but she says there's another way to look at it, and that's choosing a life with psychological richness. A life that is interesting, varied, and surprising, even if those surprises aren't necessarily, or not necessarily pleasant surprises. Sometimes a troubled life. Uh, and that leads to a certain kind of richness. And maybe that actually is the life one shoots for. And if you think about how uh, we started this cast, and we talked about uh, Tsuchi, whose last name escapes me at the moment. And, uh, Tomanets. Tomanets. And was it Shirley was the name of the woman gamer? Duxin. Yeah, uh, particularly Tutsi, who's who I know a little bit more about, not an easy life. Uh, a lot of disappointments, a lot of setbacks, a lot of limitations, uh, a lot of challenges. And yet you couldn't help but emerge, uh, from that, uh, television show, that profile, if you will, thinking that she had lev- lived a very rich life, a very full life. Uh, well, and- let me
0: sum it up the way, uh, with the article. Sure. Okay. The desire for a psychologically rich life may go beyond just avoiding boredom. After all, the unexpected, even the tragic, can have a transformative power that goes beyond the hedonic or the eudaimonic. As a great Leonard Cohen song says, it's the cracks that let the light come in. All right, so let's head for some cracks.
2: <laughs> all right, Zeke, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next week. This is uh, Dan Abuhoff. And Tamson Granger. And
1: Zeke. Zeke Abuhoff. Okay.
0: See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.